I bet you have asked somebody for a phone number, right? You ever asked for a phone number? I'm not talking about some girl if you're a guy. I'm just saying, you ever asked for a phone Raise your hand. You ever asked for a phone number? All right. This was a simple question. Um, I bet you've asked for an address. How many of you said, I need an address to write a thank you note? How many of you asked for a reference letter? You needed somebody to make, make a reference letter for you? Okay. Uh, have you ever asked for a ride to church, to the hospital, to the grocery store, wherever? Okay. Have you ever asked to borrow five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks? Come on, raise your hands high. Who are the thieves in the room? You've, ra- you've asked to borrow. Okay. But I bet you have never asked to have someone go without food for three days for you. Have you ever asked somebody to go without food for you? It's what Esther does. You've asked a lot of things in your life, but I would assume that most of us in this room, me included, I've never asked anybody to go without food for three days for me. Esther does. The stakes are high. Here's what Esther says. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. She is asking the people in the capital of Susa not to eat or drink for three days for her. What I want to do today is, first of all, tell you the story of Esther. There are four main characters. The first one is King Xerxes. Say, King Xerxes. The second one is Mordecai, Haman, and Esther. It's an incredible story. It's a thriller. It's a drama. It's a love story. It's rated R. It's an incredible story. It really is. It's in the Bible. And what I want to share with you is how this story of the fast got started. By the way, how are you doing with the fast? Okay, 14 days so far. You do look a little thinner out there. How many of you are fasting from desserts, sweets, breads, chips, alcohol? Coffee? Raise your hands high. Coffee? We are staying away from you for another week, okay? Um, This King Xerxes, he's almost like Alexander the Great. He's got 127 different territories that are his. And he invites all 127, basically, lieutenant colonels to come into Susa, which is modern-day Iran, it's Persia, and to have a party. He has a party for 180 days. Say that, 180 days. Now, that's a party, right? Anybody ever been to... No, I don't want to know the answer to that. Don't, don't. Let's just keep that to yourself. After he has all these military officials and governors and princes in, he has a seven-day party for all the cooks, the maids, the servants, for everybody in the town. During the seven-day party for all his people, he asks for the queen, Queen Vasta, to come in and to display her beauty. Now, we're reading and we're watching about sexual harassment every day in the news. It didn't start with Matt Lauer or Charlie Rose or Bill Collins. It didn't start with any of those guys. It may have started with King Xerxes because he asks the queen to come in wearing only her royal crown. Do I need to explain this? Anybody in the room not get this? Don't raise your hand. Okay, one of my friends just raised their hand. Don't raise your hand, okay? Um, the, The point is she was asked to do something and she was unwilling to do it. 
And she then got deposed. Now there's a search for another queen in the land. And this is where the story of Esther takes place. This is where Esther, who is a Jew, who was in exile 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem, now into Susa, Persia, Iran. And here's the story. Here's how it unfolds. Now, we're going to go through a lot of Scripture about the next 12 minutes. Hang with me. The application is coming for us at the end. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. This is Esther. That's her name. Her name is Esther, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, if the scriptures say you're fine, you're fine, okay? If the Bible says you're smoking hot, you are smoking hot, okay? I didn't write this. This is just what it says. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when when her father and mother uh, died. So Esther is raised in the home of whom? Mordecai. Mordecai is the uncle. She is the niece. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now as we join the story, Esther has now replaced Queen Vasti. Esther has now become the main queen, the main wife of this big-time king named King Xerxes. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Now every story has an antagonist. Haman is the antagonist. Every good story that has conflict has a villain. He's the villain. Haman is like um, little rocket man over there in North Korea. Um, Haman, (laughs) sorry, I'm sorry. It stuck. I, I remember when he said that, it stuck, didn't it? Haman is little rocket man. Haman is Assad from Syria. I'll use somebody else, all right? Haman is the evil. He's the antagonist. Um, He's an Agagite, elevating him, giving him a seat of honor. Now, you need to know about Haman because Haman's going to try to do something to Mordecai in just a few minutes. All the royal officials of the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. Xerxes made Haman number two man, and Haman likes the power. You know how some guys like the power? He loves the power, and he wants everybody else to bow down to him. But Mordecai would not kneel. Mordecai is a Jew. He only bows down to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not about to bow down to another man. And this infuriated Mordecai. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Now here's where the music changes. Haman's going to kill all the Jews if he can, not just Mordecai. And this is where the story of Esther takes place. And it's just like your life. It's not about you. 
And the earlier you figure out that life is not about you, you realize that you're on a divine mission and you have a destiny. And really, only the people in this life who figure out that this life is not about this life, it's about what they can do in this life for the life to come, those are the people who have life. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of King Xerxes. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, now here's the plot. Here's how he's going to kind of finagle his way and try to ask for a new law and get this law so that the Jews will be killed. There's a certain people, O King Xerxes, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom, who keep themselves separate. So what's he saying already? They're not like us. They're not like you. They're different than us. And always when you want to hurt somebody, you have a spirit of separation. You want to separate people. Their customs are different than those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Well, the king's going to listen. Haman's the number two guy. Surely he has my best interests in mind. Certainly he's not narcissistic or self, you know, self-motivated. Well, he is. Let a decree be issued to destroy them. Now, what you've got to understand about a decree in that day is a decree from a king's hand or the law of the, Peds, of the uh, um, Medes and Persians could not be revoked. Now, we all know our laws of our land, we can have something and it can be revoked, right? We might have this for a season and it might work and it might not, but our Congress can, you know, reenact something or revoke. You couldn't do that. Once the king did it, it was done. You could not revoke the stroke of the pen or the signet ring from the king's hand. Let, an issue be, be, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, so now here's the next section of Scripture. Mordecai hears what Haman did. Mordecai hears what King Xerxes did. King Xerxes signed into law that the next year, on a certain month, on a certain day, all the Jews would be slaughtered. Mordecai hears this. When Mordecai learned of all that he had done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. He's so upset. He can't believe this has taken place. Now, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal treasuries were summoned, and they wrote out in the script of each province. So now, in other words, all of King Xerxes' secretaries and all the couriers and all the social media, so to speak, it's getting out to the land, and there will be a day and there will be a month next year where the Jews will be annihilated. The governors heard about this. It was written in the name of King Xerxes. It was sealed with his own ring. Now, Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, I need your help. Esther, you're the queen. Esther, you have influence with the king. I need you to go and speak to the king. And Esther's like, I don't think so. You don't go see the king unless he calls for you. If you go see the king without an invitation and he doesn't take the scepter and extend it to you, you are executed on the spot. And here's what Mordecai says to Esther, and she's quaking. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? 
but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Why are you in the job you're in? Why do you go to the school that you go to? Why do you have the position in life that you do? Why do you live in that apartment or that townhouse or that house? Why do you have those kingdom connections? Why do you think God has divinely, distinctly placed you within a school, a family, an opportunity, a business, a job, a relationship? It's because such a time as this. And God has you exactly where he wants you to be. And when God has you where he wants you to be, he's going to use you always for kingdom purposes. Well, Esther realized that this was a big deal, and there was a lot at stake. And the entire Jewish nation was at stake. And so here's what she does. She asks all the people to go without food for three days. Now, can you imagine asking somebody to do that? I mean, I can ask you to pray for me, and I've asked a lot of you to pray for me. But I've never, ever asked anybody to go without food for three days for me. She asks this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa. That's the capital. And fast for me. I got to go see the king. I need a miracle. I need a breakthrough. That's why we're fasting. We're fasting these 21 days because we know what you can do. But what can God do? We know where you've been, but where can God take you? You know what's happened, but what can happen in your life? A fast is about a miracle. A fast is about a breakthrough. A fast is about a change, a transformation, an idea, an insight, understanding. A fast is so much bigger than you. And so she says, I need everybody to go without food. Now, there's all kinds of fasts in the Bible. There's about 17 different fasts in the Bible. Last week we were in Daniel. Daniel alone has two. Daniel does one 10-day. Daniel does one 21-day. So there's lots of different types of fasts. Don't get hung up on the food. The issue is really never the food. The issue is the prayer that takes place when you're hungry or when your stomach's growling. Go gather together all the Jews. Do not eat or drink. Fast for me. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish... She said, I will perish. Now, where in your life this morning do you need some courage? Do you need to speed up? Do you need to slow down? God saying no or God saying go? Where in your life this morning through this fast is God speaking distinctly and divinely to you? Don't miss this incredible opportunity that you have. Well, let's go to chapter 4, verse 17. So Mordecai went away, and he carried out all of Esther's instructions. So she goes to see the king. See, she fasts. Now, on the third day of the fast, of all the people fasting for her, if she perishes, she perishes, but she's going to go for it. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court... He was pleased with her, thank God, probably because of the fast, probably because the people were asking for her to have favor. He was pleased with her, and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached, and she touched the tip of the scepter. 
And then the king asked her, what do you want? You're here for a purpose. What is it that you really want? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Well, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with who? Little rocket man, okay? (laughs) Haman, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared. And so the queen gets the king and the antagonist, Haman, to come basically to her royal quarters, and she has a banquet. Now, it's the next day of the banquet where the drama really gets exciting. But first of all, I want to put a little bit more drama in the story that takes place with Haman and Mordecai. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant me a petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come again tomorrow. I want a second banquet tomorrow. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. What's the question? What is it you want? Why did you request this? What, do, what can I do for you? Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his sons, his, the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and the officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. He thinks it's going to be a great banquet. It's going to be a banquet, all right. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Well, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the, in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. She's kind of sweet and tender too, isn't she? <laughs> She's got the Spirit of God, doesn't she? Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Now, this is an interesting twist, because in the sixth chapter, because of the fast, the king cannot sleep. And the king asks his attendants to read to him some of the history of the chronicles about their, their, their land. And what comes up is a guy named Mordecai that the king doesn't even know. A guy named Mordecai had actually foiled an assassination attempt against the king. King Xerxes had two gatekeepers to the royal palace who who were going to assassinate him, and Mordecai found out about it, and these two guys were assassinated, and the king lived. And and the king says, well, now, I don't even know who Mordecai is. Did we honor him? No, nothing was done for him. Well, what should we do for him? And so they said, well, we should give him a royal horse, and we should parade him around. And so the best part of this story is Haman's actually the one who has to go out, parade Mordecai throughout the city, and he is dying, dying with uh, heartache. The Queen Esther answered, now we're back to to the second banquet. If I have found favor around the table, lying around the floor, is King Xerxes, is Haman, and is Queen Esther. Day two. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life, that is my petition, and spare my people. And the king's going, huh? 
And Haman's going, what's this got to do with a banquet? For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would, be, would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked the queen, Esther, well, who is he? Who did this? Where is he, the man who dared to do such a thing? And Esther answered, an adversary, an enemy. And she looks across the table, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the answer is, you bet he was. They take a sheet, they wrap up his head, they take Haman out, and they impale him on the 50-cubit, 75-foot pole that he had built to kill uh, Mordecai. Long story short, the Jews defend themselves. Thousands and thousands and thousands of their enemies were killed. They take Haman's 10 sons, they killed them, and then they impaled them on 10 different poles. Incredible story. Who says the Bible's not interesting and doesn't have incredible drama for us? All right. Now, I want to, that's the backdrop. Now, I want to talk about you. How does this apply to your life and to mine? Well, let's talk about the fast, first of all. Because fasting is your secret weapon for trouble and for opportunities. I'm going to talk about trouble in just a minute, but it's kind of funny because another pastor and I, we've worked this out and we do this occasionally, but I will have people that are just really angry about church and God and they don't come here and they don't know me and they don't know us, but they're just angry because I'm like religious to them and I, I connect them to something that's a very bad experience in their life, I guess. And so I'm out in the community and somebody will say, well, who are you and what church do you represent? And when someone's angry like that, I look at them straight in the eye and I say, my name is Willie Rice. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Baptist Church. And I walk away. And I text Willie, you're going to get an email, my friend. And I hope he does the same with me. I'm Kurt Parker, senior pastor of Harvest. I hope he does the same. A fast is about, we're going to talk about trouble in just a minute. How many opportunities do you have? You don't know. How many opportunities can you see? You can't see them. How many opportunities does God have in store for you? You have no idea. And what a fast does, a fast opens your eyes to the heartbeat of God to see how God wants to work in your life. What else does it do? Well, it shows you where to fight. You see, before Esther ever went to the, to the king, she fasted. Now, this is just me. You've heard me say this before. This is just me and Danita. I, I wouldn't do anything major in your life without fasting. I, that's just me. I, I wouldn't buy a car without fasting. I would never buy a house without fasting. I would never take a job without fasting. I, I, I would not do anything in my life major without a called fast because that's how you fight. And when you learn to fast, you learn to quiet everything down, 
Have you noticed that this past 14 days? You're not spending as much time watching TV. You don't have the radio on so much in the car or the truck because you are praying during those commutes or you are praying at night about what's on your fast. And all of a sudden, you get a little quieter and you can kind of hear the voice of God a whole lot more when you're, I would not do, I wouldn't date someone. If you're, I, I, I wouldn't do anything without a fast. Because this is such a fast-paced culture and a loud, noisy culture, I need to hear the voice of God. I wouldn't do anything. So you fight, first of all, with a, with a fast. Thirdly, it's about a birthplace. Everything you've ever done started somewhere. Every assignment in your life, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to go to play baseball, I'm going to go play hockey, whatever you do, it all had an assignment somewhere. If you notice throughout Scripture, every assignment had a birthplace almost in a fast. It was Paul who had just gotten knocked off of his horse on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, during a fast, he gets the revelation for his life, the calling for his life. It was Peter who, during a fast, got the calling to go be a light to the Gentiles. It was Cornelius, during a fast, when the angel visits Cornelius and says, your prayers and alms have come up to us as a memorial offering. It was Jesus, during a fast, after a 40-day fast, the first words of Jesus are, repent. Because the kingdom of God is here. Repent, because it's on. It's here. And everything in your life started somewhere. And why wouldn't you want all of your assignments to be birthed out of or during a fast? All right, I've saved the last one. Trouble is transportation. You're going, what in the world does that mean? We look at trouble... And we don't see it as transportation. Now, if you cause trouble like King David, you commit adultery and you kill Uriah, I'm not talking about, you, you do something immoral, illegal, that trouble's not transportation. That trouble is a ditch. That trouble's a dead end. I'm not talking about that kind of trouble. But in your life, you and I work so hard to avoid trouble. And yet trouble is always transportation. Now think about every challenge of your life. Every challenge you've had in your life has made you stronger. It has deposited something within you. You are never the same after you go through one of those challenges in your life. Here is Esther. Her parents are dead. She now has to go parade to become one of the wives of the king. She's raised by an uncle who may or may not have understand girls in his home. And everywhere you go, there's trouble, trouble, trouble for Esther. Trouble was transportation. Trouble was moving her to where someday she would be in a position to help save the entire Jewish nation. God has placed you in a role, and all of your trouble makes you stronger. Now think about every time you have a challenge or a conflict. It's like push-ups. They make you stronger. They deposit something inside of you. And Mordecai, trouble was transportation. Every time Mordecai had a difficulty, a challenge, it made him stronger, and God could, could use him. God could trust him. He was faithful with the task that God gave to him. And eventually, he got 
Haman's estate. Eventually, King Xerxes put Mordecai as the number two man of the entire 127 provinces. Trouble is transportation in your life. Maybe we should quit looking at trouble as darkness as an end in itself. Because really, trouble is little by little working through your darkness toward your destiny. It is God using your difficulties to make you stronger so that someday He can use you greater. I, I look back on those early days as a senior pastor at age 28 and 30 and 32, and I look back at how little pressure I had. And little, but at the time, at the time, it was larger than life. At the time, I didn't think I could kind of get through some of those things. And looking back, that was candy land compared to where we are today. I bet you're really glad that that job didn't work out because trouble brought you somewhere else. I bet you're really glad that that relationship didn't work out. You didn't marry him. You didn't marry her because trouble was transportation. And so don't freak out if you don't get the application, if you don't get the high school baseball team. Don't freak out if you don't get the job. God's got a much bigger plan than you could ever see or ever dream. Because trouble, when you're under the umbrella of God, if you're not in the umbrella of God, you should be freaking out. But if you're under the umbrella of God, trouble is always transportation. You were not anointed from trouble. You were anointed for trouble. And that trouble makes you bigger and stronger and healthier and wiser and more capable and more gifted and gives you a bigger platform and a much greater position. Well, Mike grew up in Detroit in the 1930s and 40s. And his dream as a little boy was to play professional baseball. It's all he ever wanted to do is play professional baseball. So after high school, he went to into the military. In 1952, came back from the military, the Korean conflict, came back, and he got a four-year contract with the Detroit Tigers. All he ever wanted to do was play professional baseball, major league baseball with the Detroit Tigers. He got a minor league four-year contract. In the third year of the four-year contract, he blew out his knee, baseball career is over. His dad said, come home, but you got to get a job. No son of mine's going to live at this house without a job and paying some rent. And so Mike calls a friend of his who owned a restaurant and said, the old man's harping on me. I got to have a job. I got to pay some rent. I don't know what to do. Can I have a job? And the friend said, I don't have any openings. I don't have any positions right now. But i tell you what you can do is you can come be a busboy. And he learned to wait on tables. And he said, we need somebody to make some pizzas. And so in the back, he's making pizzas. And he actually got pretty good at making pizzas. You know Mike Elich uh, as the owner of Little Caesar's Pizza. And he never got to play Major League Baseball. He just owned the Detroit Tigers. He just owned them. And he bought the team in 1992, and he passed away uh, last year, net worth of only $6 billion. Our neighbors, Bob and Teresa, lived across the street and three houses over uh, until about four years ago. 
there now in their late 80s, 88, 89, maybe almost 90. But Bob and Teresa um, were just great neighbors and didn't know them. We moved in our neighborhood 13 years ago. And I'm in the driveway one day, and Bob in his 70s would ride over 100 miles on his bicycle every week, an amazing athlete and bicyclist. And I'm out there in the driveway one Friday, and I'm working on Emily's brakes on her bicycle. And Bob must have seen, we'd never met before, we're new in the neighborhood, and Bob must have seen I didn't have a clue what I was doing and probably loved my kids. And so he said, you need some help there? And he said, aren't, aren't you the preacher? And I said, I am. I am a preacher. And he, and he started telling me about his faith. He said, I want to tell you about my faith. And he's fixing the brakes. And he's probably, I guess he's probably 75-ish at the time. And he said, well, um, thank God I married Teresa. I said, well, okay, I like Teresa. Tell me about Teresa. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, I went through a terrible divorce in Massachusetts. And he said these words. I know there's a lot of theological knots to what I'm getting ready to tell you. He said, but it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me was my divorce. Because he said, Teresa introduced me to the Bible. Teresa introduced me to church. Teresa introduced me, he said, to Jesus Christ. And he said, because of my divorce, he said, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus today. Now, I'm not recommending you get a divorce today. Okay? I am saying... The trouble is always, when you're under the umbrella of God, it is always transportation. And during a fast, we are asking God to do things bigger, greater, faster than we could ever dream or ever imagine. And your heavenly Father has such plans and such dreams for you. And have you figured this out yet? It's not about you. Have you figured it out that he's put you in a position so you can love, help, forgive, teach, educate, whatever? Have you figured out that I'm in this school, I'm in this neighborhood, I'm in this industry, I'm in this job, I'm in this place because my heavenly father wants to use me to make a significant difference for his kingdom. I want to ask you to stand, and I want to pray over you and pray for you. I want to ask our prayer partners to come down front. And I want to pray for you during this fast that we will see where God is taking us and the incredible opportunities that we have before us. Now, we always end our services with an opportunity for you to give your life to Jesus Christ. That is no trouble, and that's the transportation. That's where you want to go. And so at the end of our services, we'd love for you to become a Christian. We'd love for you to give your life to Christ. But let me pray for you with your trouble. O King of kings and Lord of lords, every one of us in this world has trials and tribulations. In fact, Jesus, you said we would have a lot of trials and tribulations in this world. And so, Father, because we're Christians and because we're under your umbrella of grace, may you lead us to be all that we can be and to serve you greater and greater and greater. 
And may we fast and fight and go forward with incredible action. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you.